Good evening. Tonight, we're going to go through part four of our talk on how to have a happy marriage, a Catholic sacramental viewpoint. This talk was given at St. Ephraim on Wednesday, March 29th, and I'm re-recording it because during that talk, I simply forgot to record it. This talk is on sacramental marriage. So the first three talks were about natural marriage and how to be happy within a natural marriage. And then tonight we're going to pivot and start talking about the sacrament of marriage and its purpose in our life. So as a reminder, we've gone through part one, two, and three. The first two parts were live. The third part I done online as an addendum because the second part was actually too long. And then uh, following that, we're now doing part four, which is, as I said, was given on March 25th. And then there'll be one more talk on March 29th. That will close the whole cycle around marriage. And reminder, there'll be two additional talks on dating. Let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh my God, I offer thee all my actions of this day for the intentions and for the glory of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I desire to sanctify every beat of my heart, my every thought, my simplest works, by uniting them to its infinite merits, and I wish to make reparation for my sins by casting them into the furnace of its merciful love. O oh my God, I ask of thee for myself and for those whom I hold dear the grace to fulfill perfectly thy holy will, to accept for love of thee the joys and sorrows of this passing life, so that we may one day be united together in heaven for all eternity. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have given us a model of life in the Holy Family of Nazareth. Help us, O loving Father, to make our family another Nazareth, where love, peace, and joy reign. May it be deeply contemplative, intensely Eucharistic, and vibrant with joy. Help us to stay together in joy and sorrow through family prayer. Teach us to see Jesus in the members of our family, especially in our distressing disguise. May the Eucharistic heart of Jesus make our hearts meek and humble like his and help us to carry out our family duties in a holy way. May we love one another as God loves each one of us more and more each day and forgive each other's faults as you, for, as you forgive our sins. Help us, O loving Father, to take whatever you give and to give whatever you take with a big smile. Help us, O Holy Father, to make our families one heart, full of love in the heart of Jesus through Mary. Immaculate Heart of Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Holy Guardian Angels, be always with us, guide and protect us. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now our agenda tonight will start with some references to indicate what material source I've used in this talk. Then we'll hit these five questions. What is a sacrament? Why is marriage a sacrament? Which marriage is a sacrament? I know this question might sound a little clunky, but you'll see what I mean when I get to it. Who are the ministers of matrimony? And when is a sacramental marriage valid? In fact, we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about this. And then finally, we go through some Q&A. That's in essence what we're going to be doing tonight. So now let's talk about our references. First, we have some dogmas on marriage. I'm not gonna read all of those right now, but this talk is text heavy on purpose so that when you look at the material which is usually available with the podcast you'll be able to actually read all that and then benefit from it without having to go do all the research i had to do but uh, first we have these dogmas which are taken from this book that you see basically here fundamentals of catholic dogma 
and then we're going to effectively uh, source material from encyclicals letters and exhortations by various popes there are 14 in total and then thirdly we're going to actually source quite a bit of material from the cat from the catechism of the catholic church specifically from paragraph 1601 through 1666 which talk about marriage so all of these is available or there the references are available for you for your benefit so you can actually make reference to them whenever you need to let's now hit the first question what is a sacrament so a sacrament is a visible sign of invisible grace instituted by christ for our sanctification now i changed the text slightly from the if you will classical definition which would state a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace instituted by christ for our sanctification i use visible and invisible because it makes it a little easier for us to understand and what i want to do now is help everyone understand what is meant by this statement so let's start with um, this idea of matter and form which are essential to a sacrament every sacrament has matter and form and uh, to help us understand this we're going to look at something that's obviously not a sacrament but is a sign so if you're driving on a highway you might hit a sign that says san diego with a direction now that sign is not san diego it is a sign pointing to San Diego. When you see the sign, presumably you're not seeing San Diego because not, you're not there yet. So therefore that sign is a visible sign of an invisible, in this case, reality, not grace, which is the city of San Diego. And that piece is common to that sign and the sacraments. The rest is not. Now, the matter when you hear me say matter think ingredients when you hear me say form think sort of high level recipe ingredients and recipes so the ingredients to make that sign are plastic and steel and maybe you want to add paint and a few other things but i think you get the idea and the form to make that sign are the written words that's essentially what um constitute the sign or rather the ability to write words right would be the recipe to effectively build that sign well similarly when you think of the sacrament of the most holy eucharist the ingredients the matter is the bread and the wine and then the the recipe so to speak are the words of consecration now the words of consecration are not a constructive recipe they're more a um declarative recipe they say it and it happens it doesn't tell us how it happens but we know the reality happens because when the words are said and the proper ingredients or matter being used then god fills in the blank and it is he who turns that bread and wine into the his body and blood soul and divinity therefore the <clears throat> bread and wine are the visible sign of that invisible grace which is the lord jesus himself in the in the eucharist in baptism the matter the ingredient is the water and the form the recipe is the baptismal formula i baptize you in the name of the father the son the holy spirit in a case of confirmation 
the matter is the chrism, which is this holy oil, the special oil, and the confirmation, the form is the confirmation formula. I think you're starting to get a gist of what I'm getting with. This is how every sacrament works. The case of the sacrament of uh, ordination, the imposition of the hands is the matter. So it's not just the hands, but the imposition, whether they're touching or not, doesn't matter. That is, those are the, this is the required ingredient and the uh, form are the words of consecration. In, um, in uh, confession, the admission of sins and sorrow, so sorrow is an important ingredient. Without it, there is no absolution. The admission of sins and sorrow are the matter, and then words of absolution is the form. And then in the case of the um, anointing of the sick, you have the blessed oil and the anointing. Both the anointing and the blessed oil form the ingredient, and the prayer of the priest is the form. And then finally, in the case of marriage, the ingredient, the matter, is the marriage contract, that piece of paper that people think, oh, it's just a piece of paper. That is the matter of the sacrament. And then the marital vows exchanged between husband and wife is the form. So specifically for the um, for marriage, then it's important to understand that it is a visible sign. Marriage is a visible sign of an invisible grace. And just as we are able to avail ourselves of the Eucharist or penance on a regular basis, we should avail ourselves of the sacrament of marriage when we're married on a regular basis to call upon those graces which God wished to give us, give to us. And I'll be talking about that uh, quite a bit in the next talk. All right. Why is, the why is marriage a sacrament? Well, first, we need to understand that marriage was not instituted by man, but by God. And that is dogmatic. Marriage is of divine origin, not human origin. God created mankind as man and woman. He implanted in human nature the urge for reproduction. He blessed the first couple. He conveyed to them the divine mandate of procreation, increase and multiply and fill the earth. So marriage is instituted by God between one man and one woman with the notion that the fruit of their marriage are children. That whole structure is of divine origin and we, as human beings, cannot change it. No more than we can change the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. No more than we can change the Beatitudes. Those are all God-given, and they are there for our benefit and our good and for the greatest glory of God. Why is a marriage a sacrament? Marriage is a true and pro proper sacrament instituted by God, the fide. That's the highest form of a dogma. And we need to absolutely believe it, especially in times of difficulty in a marriage. We can't just pull away from it because we have a difficulty. We need to adhere by faith to that, to that dogma, that marriage is a true and proper sacrament, a vehicle of grace instituted by God. Christ brought back marriage to an indissoluble, indissoluble monogamous marriage meaning you can't be it cannot be broken and it's one man and one woman for life for as long as they live he elevated it to the dignity of a sacrament 
And the Council of Trent confirmed against Luther that marriage is indeed a sacrament that confers grace. St. Paul stresses the religious character of marriage by demanding that it be contracted in the Lord, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, by proclaiming its indissolubility in virtue of the Lord's command, in 1 Corinthians 7.10, by relating the dignity and sanctity of marriage to that of the union of Christ with his church, Ephesians 5.32. And the Council of Trent led on this text to confirm that marriage is indeed not only a mystery, but a grace-conferring sacrament. So that tells us that there are really two aspects of a sacramental marriage which are not present in a natural marriage. The first one is that the sacramental marriage is a vehicle of grace, as we've already been saying. But the second one, it is, because it's a sacrament, it belongs truly to the life of the church. So marriage is embedded within the ecclesial life of the church. And we'll see that further. In the wedding feast of Cana, John 2.12, Christ, uh, St. John writes, this, the first of his signs, meaning the transformation of water into wine. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's important to understand that in the history or in, in um, there is a theme that is very near and dear to the fathers. And that theme is known as recapitulation. And what recapitulation is, is the idea that each and every one of us in our life, from birth to death, recapitulate meaning replay the in the, the entirety of scripture and to see that you can think of it this way when you're in your mother's womb you're like an adam and eve in the garden and then when you're born you're thrown out of the garden into the wilderness and then um, through baptism you are now joined to the people of god which means you're basically crossing through um, the Dead Sea uh, out of Egypt. So out of slavery to Satan, baptism frees you from um, the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of the devil and makes you and, and, and gets you to join the kingdom of God. And so you cross into what? The wilderness. And so as you grow, you might go through foibles and, and troubles and you might um, get up and fall and fail and wander and kind of um, try to find your way until when? Until you basically take on Christ. You make him truly your God. You choose him. And at, this, at which point you cross into the promised land through, again, the Jordan River, another crossing. It's not baptism. In principle, it would be confirmation, but for many of us, it doesn't happen then. It happens much later. Mm. Nevertheless, we choose Christ. Now we enter the promised land, which is the church on earth. We've been in the church, so to speak, just as the people of God, Israel, were Moses, right? Were the people of God in the wilderness. But the idea is that now you really, truly espouse those beliefs and make them your own and then you live in the church and we know what happens through uh, acts 
um, in, in difficulties and confusions, there's questions, nothing is easy. But then eventually, hopefully, you die. And when you die, you are now entering the book of Revelation, where finally you join the multitude in heaven in praising God and celebrating the liturgy in heaven as the liturgy ought to be celebrated. Why am I bringing all this? I'm bringing all this because there's this notion that scripture is not just about events of the past. It's also about our lives. It tells us a lot about our own lives. So for instance, in this particular case, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So likewise, in every marriage, Jesus, who is the author of that sacrament, manifests his glory so that his disciples may believe in him. Hence, a sacramental marriage, unlike a natural marriage, has a mission to proclaim Christ to the world just by being a sacramental marriage. And the life of the family within the sacramental life of the church is meant to be truly missionary. And if you read the biographies of many of the greats, um, the great converts, Chesterton uh, comes to mind, um, and others, you will see that in almost every situation, they've had, they've met a, uh, a family of, of God. I can think, for instance, also of Israel Zoli. Israel Zoli was the, um, um, uh, he, he was in charge of the, um, if you will, the, the synagogue of Rome during the time when Hitler issued the order to round up all the Jews in Rome and take them into exile. And he worked really close with the Pope, uh, Pius XII, to be able to hide and protect the Jews. He eventually converted. And he would say in his writings that uh, one of the reasons why he converted was because he met a Catholic family. So that happens quite a bit. And that's the purpose of a sacramental marriage. The marriage is covenantal. What is a covenant? I have a series of talks that you can find on Corbono under the Catholic Foundation Library that addresses a covenant. But briefly, a covenant is an exchange of people in order to extend the family. A contract is an exchange of goods in order to grow wealth. A covenant is an exchange of people in order to grow the family. And a covenant, as it's structured in ancient times, was always between the weak party and the strong party. And the strong party sets the conditions of the covenant and issues blessings and curses so that those who follow those conditions are blessed and those who do not are cursed. And the covenantal nature of marriage means that God, who is the author of marriage, issues conditions about what marriage should be like. And the church are going is, details those for us. And I'm going to hit those when I talk about the validity of marriage. And... Um, expects us to essentially follow, to be obedient to what the church teaches. And if we are, he blesses. And if we're not, he curses us. It's that simple. All right. And then, um, obviously, sacrament is a visible sign of God's grace and love. 
St. Ignatius of Antioch, it befits the bridegroom and the bride to enter a nuptial relationship with the approval of the bishop so that the marriage may be according to the Lord and not according to concupiscence. You can see here, according to the Lord is on the blessing side, according to concupiscence is on the cursing side, so that we want the marriage to be what the church wants that marriage to be. Tertullian also attests that marriage was contracted before the church. This is basically both St. Ignatius and Tertullian. You're going back to 4th century AD, right? 8107 for St. Antioch, and Tertullian was probably as close. Um, don't remember exactly, but certainly before the 4th century. How shall I be able to describe the happiness of a marriage which the church performs, the offering of the sacrifice, ratifies, and the blessing seals, to which the angels assent, and which the Heavenly Father recognizes? The Heavenly Father recognizes. So you can see how that marriage, when it is a sacrament, is part of the life of the church, but also is part of the life of the Trinity, because it is recognized by the Father. In Christ's participation in the marriage of Cana, the fathers see a recognition in the hallowing Christian marriage, as they see a hallowing of the water for administration of the sacrament of baptism in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. Just as Jesus, by walking in the river, instead of being purified by it, he provides it, in order to turn it into a proper vehicle for the sacrament of baptism. Likewise, when he transformed water into wine at Cana, he basically elevated marriage to the level of a sacrament. All right. Now, why is it, again, why is it a, why is it a sacrament? There's, a, there's, something, there's an aspect to this that we need to look at a little closer, so let me read this for you. Since marriage is not only a human act, but a sacred event, men and women should approach marriage with maturity and seriousness. So the sacredness of the marriage in a sacramental marriage requires us not only to consider the natural implication of marriage, but the supernatural implication of marriage. So we need to be very careful because God's love for his people is unfailing. The commitment made between the groom and bride should be perpetual. Otherwise, marriage loses its meaning as a mystery, sacrament, that's the same word. It becomes merely a revocable human contract. This is why the church requires that those approaching marriage should be mature and serious enough to know what is involved in their commitment. Also, the mystery of marriage reveals a profound teaching and reality. Love is at the heart of creation. The ultimate goal of creation is the mutual love between God and his people. Each act of love by human beings is a participation in the divine plan. So the marriage between two people is revealing that mystery. So you see the visible sign of an invisible reality, which is that love is at the heart of creation. There is a love relationship between God and the created order, and most importantly, between God and his church. Among the forms of love expressed by human beings, especially significant is the committed and lifelong love between men and women. Each marriage celebrated before God in a church is a microcosm of the love of God for his people. Each celebration of the mystery of crowning is an occasion for the divine presence. In, uh, in Eastern traditions, mystery of crowning, these words here that you see, are effectively, um, let me just highlight them for you. These words are synonymous with marriage. All right. Which marriage is a sacrament? Not every marriage is a sacrament. Every valid contract of marriage between Christians is of itself a sacrament. So it requires baptized Christians. 
to be able to elevate marriage to a sacrament. Christ elevated um, the natural marriage, which consists essentially in a contract of marriage to the dignity of a sacrament. The sacrament of matrimony coincides materially with that contract. Okay, read those words carefully. Corresponds materially. Materially is about the matter of the contract. Remember, of the sacrament. Remember, we said that the sacrament has matter and form. What is the saying is that materially, the matter of the sacrament of matrimony is that contract which is signed. Therefore, every contract of marriage between Christians is on the ground of positive divine ordinance. So, positive divine ordinance, that means it's on the ground of the um, order willed by God at the same time as sacrament. So, when two Christians are getting married, that contract, which are signing and the vows they're saying, make that piece of paper now a sacrament meaning a visible sign of an invisible reality. Okay. The contracting parties in matrimony minister the sacrament to each other. So who administers the sacrament of matrimony? The, the bride and the groom. The essence of the sacrament of matrimony lies exclusively in the contract of marriage, as we have seen. The two contracting parties are both ministers and recipients of the sacrament. Each administers it to the other by accepting the other's word of affirmation. In a Catholic marriage, the priest, as representative of the church, is an official witness to the contract to the uh, to the contracting marriage, confirms the consent of marriage, and blesses the marriage. But I also need to point out, uh, you know, some subtle differences. In the Latin rite, the celebration of marriage between two Catholic faithful normally takes place during Holy Mass, because of the connection of all the sacraments with the Paschal mystery of Christ. In the, Euchar in the Eucharist. The memorial of the new covenant is realized, the new covenant in which Christ has united himself forever to the church, his beloved bride, for whom he gave himself up. It is therefore fitting that the spouses should seal their consent to give themselves to each other through the offering of their own lives by uniting it to this offering of Christ for his church, made present in the Eucharistic sacrifice, and by receiving the Eucharist so that, communicating in the same body and the same blood of Christ, they may form but one body in Christ. So, what this text is telling you is that the celebration of marriage, now note, note the words because this is really important, the celebration of marriage takes place during Holy Mass. What this is not saying, what's not telling you is that you this is not saying that you need the Mass for the celebration of marriage. You understand? Celebration of marriage is its own liturgy. And whether there is Mass or not, as long as there is a contract and there's an exchange of vows, and it's done according to the way the Church wants it to be done, you have a marriage. So you could conceivably have a marriage without a Mass. And in fact, this is the norm in the Eastern liturgies. In the Eastern liturgies, the minister of the sacrament, which is called crowning, is the priest or bishop. So again, it's interesting how in the Eastern liturgies, the minister is thought of as being the priest, not the bride and the groom. And 
I don't want to split hair. I don't want to get too deep into it. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because of the validity and lysity of the form that I'm going to get to in a minute. Okay. Is the priest or the bishop who, after receiving the mutual consent of the spouses, successfully, uh, successively crowns the bridegroom and the bride as a sign of the marriage covenant? So this is what we call it, the mystery of crowning. And in every Eastern rite, the bride and groom are actually crowned. We they, they wear a crown and they sometimes circle the altar, depending on the specific liturgy um, that is um, uh, of marriage, depending on every um, Eastern church. All right, so now we're going to talk about what makes a Catholic marriage sacramentally valid. And this is really important. And um, you might at one point find out that marriages of people you knew were not valid. Um, if that's the case, you might want to be wondering what happens if a marriage was not valid. The answer is really simple you can they can go to the church and ask a priest to can validate their marriage in other words the if the if the marriage was not valid it means that there was really no marriage so by convalidating the marriage you're establishing it and you just take care of it this way um it doesn't mean that there was no um natural marriage it doesn't mean that there wasn't lived you know there's not experience of people living together and having a family it simply means that in the eyes of the church that marriage never take pl took place but it's really easy to remedy provided provided people are wanting to do that are sincere and they want to do what the church wants to do okay for the validity of sacrament of matrimony the following are requisites both parties meaning husband i mean the bride and the groom must have been baptized have the intention of doing what the church does meaning they want to, to obey the commandments of the church. That's what it means. Be free from invalidating impediments to marriage. We'll get into that. Meaning be free from conditions that would preclude them from being married. And adhere to the form prescribed by the church. Follows the way the church wants to do it. Which is basically before the parish priest and two witnesses. Okay. Now, we have two terms. And let's talk about those. Validity. Validity designates an action which produces the effects intended. An action which does not produce the effects intended is considered invalid. So if the marriage is not valid, it means that the action that was produced did not turn that marriage into a sacrament. That's what it means. Lysaity designates an action which has been performed legitimately. An action which has not been performed legitimately is considered illicit. Okay, and in fact, in case what it's um, what I said was that it's not just that it's not a sacrament. Mean that they're not even married, right? Let me clear. Let me be clear about this. When they get married into the church and the marriage is not valid, there was no married. There was no marriage to begin with, natural or sacramental. Okay. Now, why does validity matters? Validity matters because when a sacrament is conferred using valid matter and form. Remember matter and form for every sacrament. In the case of the marriage, is the contract and the vows. And with the intention of the minister and all involved parties to do what the church does, then the recipient receives the graces from the sacrament. Okay? That's for any sacrament, not just marriage. Now, a sacrament works according to the ex opere, opere operato, which is a Latin expression that means 
when the right is performed properly, validly, we have the dogmatic guarantee that God offers a sanctifying grace promised in the sacrament. In other words, it operates on its own. Um, so in the case of the Eucharist, for instance, it doesn't matter whether the priest believes or not. It doesn't matter whether the, the communicant believes or not. When the proper matter is used and the proper form is used, bread and wine are turned into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Okay. Now, the grace received, the grace will be received, right? Or, um, yeah, the grace will be received, and it does not depend on the personal sanctity of the recipient. So, you take a bride and a groom, and they're getting married. The grace of the sacrament, as long as it's valid, will be received. It doesn't depend on their personal sanctity, because it operates ex opere operato. However, the efficiency of the grace received in the life of the recipient depends on numerous factors, the most important being the interior disposition of the recipient. So, for instance, if the bride or the groom are in a state of mortal sin, then that grace will have no effect. It will not be effective. This principle is known as ex opere operantis. This principle literally translates to from the work of the doer and is concerned with the role and value of the recipient's moral condition in receiving sacramental grace. So ex opere operato is about the sacrament taking place. Ex opere operantis is about the effectiveness of the sacrament, and that depends on the recipient. And that particular principle is very important for us because it preserves free will. Lyceity is concerned with who is allowed to perform or receive a sacrament and under what conditions. Lyceity matters because illicit sacraments are gravely sinful. Because you can think and say, well, wait a minute. If the sacrament is valid, who cares if it's illicit or not? It's valid. The marriage happened. So we're good. Well, yeah, objectively you are, but subjectively, meaning as to the subject, we have a problem. When there is no urgency, that is, when there is no life or death reason to avoid the proper liturgy, then a sacrament performed illicitly will most certainly affect the effectiveness of the sacraments, grace in the life of a soul. The principle ex opere operantis, which means depends on the life of the work of the doer. This alone is sufficient reason for a Catholic to avoid any and all illicit sacraments. So it's very important for us if we want to make sure that the grace we're receiving is effective, that we do not um, initiate, if you will, an illicit sacrament. More importantly, because the sacraments are most holy and require the greatest reverence, a non-urgent illicit sacrament is always grave matter. In other words, when done with sufficient knowledge and consent, it is mortally sinful. So if a couple is wanting to get married in the Catholic Church, but they're not willing to follow the form of the liturgy, they want to change it to suit their fancy. And when they're told, they need to be told that if they are not following the, the proper form, it's grave matter. If they know it is grave matter and they don't care, then effectively they are committing a mortal sin. A couple who wants to be married should never consider an illicit form of the, marital of the marital sacrament unless they are about to be martyred. Right? So you're in grave danger and well that you can't do anything, but you really want to be married, 
I, its situation is really kind of, I know, weird or, or stretched. But let's go with it. If you really want to get married before you're martyred, then in that situation, it's allowed. Um, or 9-11, there was a chaplain with the um, firefighters who were actually trying to uh, stop the fires in the two towers. But then when he realized that the towers were coming down on him and them, he gave them a general absolution. That normally is not licit. In that condition, it was the right thing to do. When there is no urgency, no Catholic faithful should knowingly participate in illicit sacraments for the reasons that we just said. Okay, let's go through a little example. Baby Rachel is admitted to the hospital. Amy is a nurse working the night shift. The hospital is overbooked, so Rachel's parents are forced to spend the night in a nearby hotel. The baby's condition becomes critical. Amy designed to do what the Catholic Church and parents would do. The parents want the baby baptized. Baptizes Rachel with water while saying, I baptize you in the name of the, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is valid, meaning she used the proper matter, water, she used the proper form, the baptismal formula, but it's not licit. Why? Because it was not done in a church in the presence of the priest with the proper prayers and uh, the, the presence of God parents, which is what the church required. However, this illicit baptism would not constitute a grave matter since Amy feared for the life of baby Rachel and did what the church would do in those conditions. All right, that's another example. Baby Rachel will be baptized today. Her parents bring her to the church. Deacon Joe will perform the baptism. Let's assume also the godparents are present. He pours water over Rachel's forehead. He says, I baptize you in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and of the Sanctifier. This is not valid. He didn't use the proper form. So there is no baptism. But it is licit in the sense that he basically followed what um, what the church recommends. Now, you might argue, maybe, well, I can see how the argument can do because he did not do what the church wants to do, so therefore it's not licit. And I'm point well taken. But I was just trying to illustrate that you can actually follow the form overall. And I can, I suppose, come up with another example where you just follow the entire form, but it is not valid. Okay? If Deacon Joe knew that he was not using the prescribed form and chose in full knowledge to use the illicit form, then the illicit form would be a grave matter in this case, and he may be, he may have committed a mortal sin. All right, now let's go through these examples. Here we basically have these two axes, illicit and licit, invalid versus valid. So this is for about lyceity, and this is about validity. Let's go to illicit and invalid. We're celebrating a wedding between two Catholics who are not open to life on a beach. It makes it invalid because they're not open to life. And we're going to go through these conditions a little bit uh, uh, shortly. And the fact that they did it on the beach and not in a church makes it illicit. The fact that it's invalid, basically, you don't even have to worry about it being illicit. But I'm just trying to drive the point home to help you understand the difference between the two. Okay, illicit and valid celebrating a wedding between two Catholics who are open to life on the beach. And we're assuming that there is a priest, right? Actually, no, we don't have to assume there's a priest because, um, the, okay, on the beach is enough, it's illicit. But it's valid because we're assuming the proper form is used, there's a contract, 
and they want to want to have kids but it's not listed so again if they knew that they're using an illicit form and they went for it then they could be in danger of committing a mortal sin all right i actually had with a priest but it doesn't matter celebrating a wedding between two catholics who are not open to life in the church so this is licit but it's not valid for the same reason because they're not open to life and then there is a priest and finally licit and valid celebrating a wedding between two catholics who are open to life in the church with a priest that is a licit and valid form and this is what you want okay so What you've seen so far is the reason why the church normally requires that the faithful contract marriage according to the ecclesial form. And there are several reasons converged to explain this requirement. First, sacramental marriage is a liturgical act. Okay. So it's a liturgy. It's something that goes beyond us. It transcends us. It is therefore appropriate that it should be celebrated in the public liturgy of the church. It's not a private event. You are engaging the entire church when you get married marriage introduces one into an ecclesial order this is what i've alluded to earlier and creates rights and duties in the church between the spouses and towards their children so you're introducing the entire ecclesial order of the church when you are married sacramentally since marriage is a state of life in the church you see again integrated in the life of the church Certainty about it is necessary, hence the obligation to have witnesses. And the public character of the consent protects the I do once given and helps the spouses remain faithful to it. According, so now what happens when you have a marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic? So let's say a Protestant or an Orthodox. According to the law enforced in the Latin church, a mixed marriage needs for lyceity, remember this is the for it not to be illicit the express permission of ecclesi ecclesiastical authority so you're getting married to a protestant if a catholic is getting married to a protestant to or to an orthodox um, that catholic requires the permission of the bishop in case of disparity of cult an express dispensation from this impediment is required for the validity of marriage so not only do you need it for it being licit you also in case of disparity of cult um so in in the case where the cell the the um, um the way they the people uh, worship is different then uh, there is also requires this requires an express dispensation from this impediment required for the validity of marriage this permission of dispensation presupposes that both parties it's not enough to go and ask for permission the two conditions the both parties the catholic and non-catholic know and do not exclude the essential ends and properties of marriage as understood by the catholic church so openness to life and understand the obligations assumed by the catholic party concerning the baptism and education of the children in the catholic church so it's not enough to go and be granted a permission there needs to be an understanding on both parties Catholic and non-Catholic that the marriage 
right, must be understood the way the Catholic Church understands it. And there is an obligation on the Catholic party to baptize the children and to raise them in the Catholic Church. If those conditions are not met, the marriage is not valid. Marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic. Now I'm going to look at it from the perspective of the Maronite Church. Um, in the Maronite Church, marriages between Maronite Catholics and non-Catholic Christian may be considered valid if certain conditions are met. The prior permission of the Maronite bishop or his delegate. It must be contracted before Catholic priest or deacon and two witnesses. The non-Catholic party must also be made aware of the essential obligations and duties of a Catholic spouse and must be informed of the promise of the Catholic party to do all that is possible to have any children baptized and raised in the Catholic faith. The non-Catholic party must declare that they are aware of the Catholic partner's obligation to maintain their faith and the upbringing of the children in the Catholic Church. The Catholic party must also make a sincere promise to do all that is possible to ensure that the children are baptized in the Catholic Church and that they have a Catholic upbringing. Finally, it is advisable for couples considering mixed marriage to consult with their respective churches and to seek the guidance of their pastors or spiritual advisors. What I can tell you, this particular set of requirements state very clearly that it is impossible to have a valid marriage between a Catholic and an Orthodox because the Orthodox Church would require the exact same thing. The Orthodox Church would require that the um, Catholic party must be made aware of the essential obligation and duties of an Orthodox spouse. The marriage must happen. Uh, the marriage must be contracted before an Orthodox priest, etc., etc. So I don't see how that can really, in, in in practical sense, work. What would what would have to happen is that um, the the Orthodox party need to become Catholic for it to be considered a valid marriage from a Catholic standpoint or the Catholic person then renounces the Catholic faith and become Orthodox. And then they have to follow the, the Orthodox um, essential requirements. Now, marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic. Difference of confession between the spouses does not constitute an insurmountable obstacle for marriage when they succeed in placing in common what they have received from their respective communities and learn from each other the way in which each life lives in fidelity to Christ. This is from the Catechism, which is basically saying that there is a way to make it work, but like I said, I think it would be easier if it's between Catholic and Protestant than it would be between Catholic and Orthodox. But the difficulties of mixed marriage must not be underestimated. They arise from the fact that the separation of Christians have not, has not yet been overcome. The spouses risk experiencing the tragedy of Christian disunity, even in the heart of their own home. Disparity of cult can further aggravate these difficulties. Differences about faith and the very notion of marriage, but also different religious mentalities can become sources of tension in marriage, especially as regards to the education of the children. The temptation towards religious indifference can then arise. So it's really complicated. And it's something you really want to think about before you engage in something like this. And here I have uh, for you a website, which is the Coming Home Network. Coming Home Network was started by a group of Orthodox who, um, ascend, uh, I'm sorry, a group of Protestants who converted the Catholic, uh, to the Catholic faith and then started this organization to help others make their journey home. And it's worth, you know, watching some of those um, 
witnesses witness that um, the people who convert give and uh, understand sometimes the difficulty that husband and wife can go through the tension creates when one become Catholic and the other doesn't so something to keep in mind um, all right now as I said a marriage of Catholics of Catholic takes place without the following without sorry without following the laws and rights of the Catholic Church such a marriage does not even have the appearance of validity a, mar a marriage Catholic let me scratch this because uh, um, yeah and just forget this a marriage of Catholic Catholics takes place so if a marriage of Catholics takes place without following the laws and rights of the Catholic Church then such a marriage does not even have the appearance of validity I'm sorry about the mess up in this sentence so that invalidates marriage right away like we said you're not going to do it in mass you're not doing it before the your the parish priest yes you can go get married in somebody else's parish has to be your parish priest you can't you're not following the proper form you're you don't have the right witnesses all these things will essentially invalidate your marriage um, you need all those there are eight other reasons that could also invalidate a marriage age impotence prior bond disparity of cult coercion psychological immaturity or mental incapacity refusal to have children and exclusion of fidelity so age age could invalidate a marriage the church requires a man to be at least 16 year old and a woman 14. yes those are not typos 16 year old and a woman 14. if a 16 year old man marries a 14 year old girl the church will recognize that marriage each national episcopal conference of bishops has the authority to set a higher minimum age as a prohibitive impediment meaning that they can require that the age be different than what is understood across the board so in Canada and New Zealand for instance the men and women must be at least 18. in England and Wales South Africa and Switzerland minimum age set in accordance with civil law whatever the civil law requires that's the age that must be followed in Gambia Liberia Sierra Leone men 18 the woman 16. Philippines men 21 woman 18. Nigeria minimum age delegated to the bishop so every bishop can set it up whichever way they want in the USA the Catholic Conference of Bishops has not enacted a higher prohibitive minimum age so in the United States it is not an impediment if a 16 year old marries a 14 year old all right I would only say this that even though this is shocking and I I find it shocking it's important to keep in mind that the church is 2,000 years old and covers the globe and uh, sometimes there are reasons which you know are beyond our own understanding so I am not necessarily saying that we should we should be happy with the fact that it's still 16 and 14 I'm just saying that we need to take time to understand what the reason is and the motivation and why for instance in the CCB has not done it perhaps because in the United States the the fact of the matter that no 16 year old marries a 14 year old it just can't happen legally uh, by law and we don't see it happen so that they don't bother 
uh, changing. It's not that they are agreeing with it. It's just because it's not an issue here. That could be a potential reason why they, they haven't done it. But I, you know, I don't know for sure. I haven't looked into it. But um, something to keep in mind, uh, prudence is really important not to jump quickly to conclusion before we've really observed all the facts. Impotence will invalidate a marriage. So impotence is the inability to complete uh, intercourse according to nature. Um, and impotence must be perpetual and antecedent, and antecedent to the marriage, meaning it started before they were married. This impediment is generally considered to derive from divine law and cannot be dispensed because of the command that God gave, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. So it is inherent to the nature of marriage that a man must be able to complete intercourse. Impotence is different from sterility. Sterility has to do with the complex biological you know, situations that can cause a woman not to be pregnant, either because it's on her end or it's on the end of her husband, but that's not the same as impotence. Impotence is simply but the ability to complete the um, act of intercourse as it should be completed. Okay. A prior bond could invalidate a marriage. Previous marriages, whether conducted in the Catholic Church, in another church, or by the state. So, I just want to be clear on this. There could be a misunderstanding that only Catholic marriages need to be annulled. It's actually not true. Any marriage. The state, the, the Catholic Church has always a presumption of marriage. It always, the Church always sides on the side of marriage. She wants to protect marriage, and therefore she will assume that if two people were married, let's say, uh, outside of the church, that marriage is valid. And incidentally, this idea of no divorce isn't just for Catholic marriage. In the eyes of the church, that holds for all marriages. Because it's a divine institution. Marriage is created by God, not by man. Not sacramental marriage, marriage is created by God, not by man. Therefore, divorce is not possible. All previous attempts at marriage by both parties must be declared null prior to a wedding in the Catholic Church. Yes, indeed. If somebody's married outside the Catholic Church, that marriage must be annulled before that person could get married. This impediment of prior bond arises only from a valid marriage. An invalid marriage does not give rise to the impediment. So, for instance, if you have two Catholics who decided to go get married on the beach and then used the wrong form, didn't have a contract, didn't say the vows or said poetry or essentially stated poetry or sang or danced together without exchanging vows, that would be considered to be an invalid marriage. In this case, there is no need for annulment even though they were Catholic. So it's about valid marriage or marriage that appear to be valid in the eyes of the church, but there may have been an impediment to it, so therefore those require an annulment. Disparity of cult could invalidate a marriage. A marriage between a Catholic and a non-baptized person is invalid, non-baptized, okay? So if a Catholic decides to marry a Muslim or marry a Buddhist or an atheist, or an agnostic, or a Protestant who's not baptized, then it's automatically invalid. 
unless the impediment is dispensed by the local ordinary. So if they've asked for permission to be married by the bishop and the bishop gave him permission, then the marriage will be considered valid. Otherwise, it's invalid. And the Catechism tells us in 1633 that a case of marriage with disparity of cult between a Catholic and an unbaptized person requires even greater circumspection. So it's even harder when you have a Catholic and an unbaptized person. Okay. Other factors which invalidate a marriage, coercion, that goes without saying. This impediment exists if one of the parties is pressured by any circumstance to enter into marriage. Psychological immaturity and mental incapacity, we see quite a bit of that now. To enter into a sacramental marriage, both parties must understand and have the capacity to accept the minimum of what it entails. But fortunately, a lot of people go get married in the Catholic Church because it's romantic. They'll go down the aisle, have the organ playing, that sort of thing, and they have no clue what's going on. The Church has responded to this by increasing, if you will, the uh, preparation for marriage. Nevertheless, it can, you know, people can go through preparation of marriage you know, in one ear of the other, not paying any attention, and you end up with a situation. That's why you have an increase in annulments. It's not because the church is becoming soft. It's just that we have to recognize that a lot of marriages are simply invalid because there was no true understanding of what is it that they're doing. Therefore, when they exchanged those vows, they didn't understand the implication from a Catholic standpoint, and therefore the marriage was invalid. Refusal to have children. One of the goods of marriage is children. A man or woman physically capable of fathering or respectively conceiving a child, but who intends never to have children, may not marry in the Catholic Church. Simple as that. Exclusion of fidelity. Fidelity of each party to the other is a good of marriage. If this is specifically excluded in the mind of either party, the mind, you understand? You don't have to even say it. But if somebody's going into marriage thinking, eh, you know, you know, I'll have a few things on the side, that automatically invalidates the marriage. The couple may not marry in a Catholic church. If, if this was, uh, if this came to the knowledge of the priest, then they should be married in a Catholic church period because they are, there is no real marriage going on here. For this reason, the church, after an examination of the situation by the competent ecclesiastical tribunal, can declare the nullity of a marriage, i.e. the marriage never existed. Now let's be very clear on what, what is meant by the marriage never existed. That does not mean that the church is denying the physical reality of a man and a woman living in, in one household, you know, uh, paying taxes as a, as a household, having children. The church only is recognizing that, that sacramental marriage, that marriage when never took place in the eyes of God. It is certainly no intention on the part of the church to ignore the children or deny their existence or tell them, um, you know, um, essentially to disrespect them or demean them. But there's a higher reality here, which is, had, did this marriage take place in the eyes of God? And that is saying, no, it didn't. In this case, contracting parties are free to marry, provided the natural obligations of a previous union are discharged, like we said before. Okay. There is one interesting case that I want to bring up to your attention. So obviously, a ratified and consummated Christian marriage is indissoluble. It cannot be broken. A ratified but not consummated can be dissolved as to the bond. So in other words, the marriage is not consummated by uh, intercourse, then it can be dissolved. 
There is one thing called the Pauline privilege, which comes from 1 Corinthians 7:12. A marriage contracted and even consummated between two unbaptized persons can be dissolved as to the bond of one party to the marriage if one party of the marriage is baptized and the other party refuses to continue to live with him peacefully in the married state. So you have a couple who were not baptized. Then one discovers the faith, converts, and, and then and then is baptized. The other uh, party reacts with anger and refuses to live peacefully with the with the married spouse. Um, in that situation, the marriage can be can be the marriage can be dissolved because it recognizes the greatness of baptism and that um, we uh, the uh, the, the reality baptism, which imprints an indelible sign on the soul of the person who receives that sacrament, can never be annulled. You can't take away baptism. You cannot be unba unbaptized once you're baptized. And because of this fact, um, the if it's causing such a rift between the two, the uh, it is it is permissible for the party who is baptized to essentially, uh, to, for the marriage to be annulled fundamentally and for the person to move on. So inasmuch as it is a sacramental action of sanctification, so observe, sacramental action of sanctification. What is the marriage for? Sanctification. We're gonna cover that in a lot more detail in the next talk. The liturgical celebration of marriage must be per se valid, worthy, and fruitful. It is therefore appropriate for the bride and groom to prepare themselves for the celebration of marriage by receiving the sacrament of penance. By not receiving the sacrament of penance, they don't change the nature of marriage. If everything is done properly, if it's valid and licit, they, the sacrament takes place. The graces are given, but they're not received if they are living in a state of mortal sin. By going to the sacrament of penance, they actually remove that impediment and then the graces can flow so that the i do of the spouses may be a free and responsible act and so that the marriage covenant may have solid and lasting human christian foundations preparation for marriages of prime importance now what's really interesting is that uh, in one article uh, pope uh, francis said that an older woman came to him and told him hey you priests he was a priest back then. You priests take six years to prepare for the priesthood, and we and you give us only four um, hours to prepare for marriage. When in fact marriage is supposed to, when a marriage is going to last for a lifetime. But the truth of the matter is, the example and teaching given by parents and families remain the special form of this preparation. So uh, the formation is happening throughout the young life of uh, men and women within the family. The role of pastors and of Christian community as the family of God is indispensable for the transmission of the human and Christian values of marriage and family, and much more so in our era when many young people experience broken homes, which no longer sufficiently assure this initiation. It is imperative to give suitable and timely instruction to young people, above all, in the heart of their own families. Again, the, the, the church can and tries to give people some marriage preparation. But there is no way that in four hours, even four weeks, you can undo a mess if these kids are coming from messed up families. So it's on 
that's why it's so important to protect the family and to help the family grow and flourish and to make sure that the father and the mother are actually talking to the children on a regular basis and above all giving them good examples of a married couple. It is imperative to give suitable and timely instruction to young people above all and the heart of their own families about the dignity of married love. its role and its exercise so that having learned the value of chastity and fidelity they will be able at a suitable age to engage in honorable courtship and enter upon marriage of their own i like this word courtship um and um for instance in the maronite church we have something called the um essentially the 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 right of betrothal which is which takes place when a couple decides to get engaged. It's a beautiful right, very rich. And I hope more and more young people are gonna discover those rights and then start making use of them because they're beautiful. And courtship is sort of different than dating. And I, I, I leave it up to the youth to sort of discover the difference between courtship and dating. But I think it's, it would be a beautiful thing for them to start to see the difference between courtship and dating. Okay. Let's go through some questions. Is the marriage between a baptized and a non-baptized a sacramental marriage for the baptized person? So observe, you have a baptized and non-baptized are getting married. So it's a natural marriage. Now, is it sacramental for the baptized person? And the answer is unsettled, meaning the church has not given a definitive answer to that question. There are very, you know, varying, a variety of opinions on the topic, but we don't have a, you know, a final answer on this. Likewise, is the existing natural marriage of two unbaptized persons raised to a sacramental marriage on their baptism? So you have a couple who were married before they became Catholic. Then they become Catholic. The day they're baptized, is their marriage now sacramental? Unsettled. We don't know. Is the marriage between two baptized Christians, one or both of whom are in a state of moral sin, a sacrament? Like we said before, if the marriage is valid, and the answer is yes, because the sacrament operates on its own, independently from the state of the spouses. The sacramental graces will be received by the spouses, but would be without effect until they go to confession and obtain absolution. A man converted to Catholicism recently and wished to marry a Catholic young woman. Before his conversion, he was an atheist and he had married and divorced. Does he require an annulment for his first marriage? Yes, the church has a presumption in favor of marriage. She assumes that a marriage is valid under the natural law until proven otherwise. The first marriage would need to be annulled before he could marry because the church likes to protect all marriages. I am invited to attend my sister's wedding. She is a non-practicing Catholic and her wedding is most likely invalid. Should I attend? So the starting position is no, you should not attend. But um the situation can get complicated very quickly the first thing you need to do is reach out to your bishop or to your priest and ask for um, their guidance one thing they will tell you is that it'll be a lot easier if your sister declares officially that she's no longer a catholic because if she makes that declaration she she says she's no longer a catholic then at the very least you're now dealing with a natural marriage and therefore you no longer are there to witness a an invalid marriage involving a catholic you're there to witness 
in natural marriage. In that regard, the natural marriage may be valid because the conditions are different. The second reason that you have to consider, and that's where you need to talk to a priest, so there's prudential judgment involved here. If by not attending, you're going to cause a much deeper rift between you and your sister, and maybe the rest of the family, and that result in a scandal so deep that it want, it's going to wound the entire family and prevent you from being an effective witness to the faith, then maybe you should attend. Uh, but what I, would what I will tell you is that do not use this answer of mine as a rule of conduct. What needs to happen is that you should consult with um, prudent and wise priests, maybe reach out to your bishop, and then uh, pray about the situation so that depending on the particular circumstances of that uh, marriage, um, you would know what to do or what not to do. In all cases, it will never be a comfortable situation. Don't count on it being comfortable. Count on it being uncomfortable and ignore the comfort or uncomfort side of it. What is important is to do what is right. Um, and what is right in this case is prudential judgment. There is no clear-cut answer in all cases. So you need to really consult with, uh, like I said, prudent uh, priests and uh, speak to maybe people who would have had this experience uh, so you and then pray and uh, then figure out what to do and if you're in a situation like this i'm really sorry because these are never easy to deal with all right and here we are coming to the end of this uh, talk if you have more questions in regards to the sacramentality or validity of a marriage you can always write to me at questioncorbono.com. I typically monitor this uh, email pretty closely and I will answer every question come my way. Thank you for listening and watching and may God bless you.